Our text today, if you don't see it there in the bulletin already, is the next chunk of verses that we get to in John's letter. So 1 John chapter 2 and verses 9 to 11. So 1 John chapter 2 verses 9 to 11. And I'll go ahead and begin by, by reading these verses for us this morning. 1 John 2, verses 9 to 11. John writes this. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness And walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, hopefully, as we read through that, it's not hard for you to think of another set of verses that we've already studied in John's letter that sounds a little bit similar to what we've just read. Verses 7 to, or verses 9 to 11, we see in there the theme of walking in the light or walking in the darkness. And so you know that we encountered that theme back in chapter 1 in some important verses there. So look at 1 John 1 verses 6 and 7 where John says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. And the basic point of these verses is that a life which is lived by continually and habitually walking in the light is one that will prove that it walks in the light by its, by its actions. We see that both in 1 John 1 and here in 1 John 2, that walking in the light is verified by what we do. We not only say that we walk in the light, but we back it up by living the way we should. And I also hope that you find it interesting that these two sections about walking in the light serve as a really a set of bookends in this uh, part of John's letter. We have it there in the middle of chapter 1, and we have it here in the middle of chapter 2, and those two bookends serve to complete a thought. Really, this is what John has been talking about as we've studied it over the last several weeks. And before, in chapter 1, before John talked about walking in the light, he was writing what we considered his prologue. And then when we look at verse 12 of chapter 2, it's clear that John is really starting something a little bit different there because he starts into really a, a kind of poetic description that we'll get into in the coming weeks. So... After the prologue, when John starts talking about walking in the light, all the way through to the middle of chapter 2 here, where he talks about walking in the light again, he's really presenting to us one theme. So we could say that just about everything that we've learned so far in John's letter can be summed up in the idea of what it means to walk in the light, or conversely, what it means to not walk in darkness. 
And so for his final treatment on this idea of walking in the light, John does something for us that's very, very practical. And I hope you will see how helpful and practical it is. He brings us to a concept that has immense day-to-day practical relevance for each of us. His concluding thought on this all-important theme of walking in the light has to do with how we love other Christians. That's the practical point. And so we're going to consider John's final charge to all of us in order that we might better understand the practical urgency of being certain that we indeed walk in the light. We hope to all walk from this place knowing with confidence that we walk in the light and not in darkness. And John has given us a very practical way to assess that for ourselves. So a gift to us. The apostle in these verses, verses 9 to 11, actually gives a very clear logical structure. We can observe it just in looking at the first words of each phrase. Look at verse 9. John says, whoever says. And then in verse 10, he says, whoever loves. And then in verse 11, he says, but whoever hates. And from that structure that's really clear, we derive three helpful ideas that teach us about the true nature of walking in the light. Now, let me give them to you up front, as I like to do, and then we'll walk through each of them individually. These are three three practical ideas that teach us the true nature of walking in the light. And the first one is this. If you only claim to walk in the light, if you only claim it with your mouth, then nothing is proved. If you merely claim to walk in the light then nothing is proved. The second point is this. If you love Christians, then you prove that you walk in the light. If you do love Christians, then you prove that you walk in the light. And then the third point that he makes is that if you do not walk in the light, then you are blind. If you do not walk in the light, you're blind. That's the third point. And we'll talk through all these and how they relate together on this theme of walking in the light. These are the three logical points that John makes in order to help us discern the true nature of walking in the light. And so we ought to apply them to ourselves as we consider these points. I hope that this morning we not only learn about what John is teaching, not only learn the content, but I hope we'll take what he says and we'll apply it to our own hearts to test ourselves, to see if this really is what we measure up to. I hope we see where we fit with each of these important truths. So with that goal in mind, let's begin understanding what John is teaching about the true nature of walking in the light. And we'll start by looking at the point there in verse 9. And the point is this. If you can only claim to walk in the light, then nothing at all is proved. So look at verse 9. John says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. And it's important for us to observe that John does not say that whoever says he's in the light is truly in the light. He does not tell us to simply take someone's word for it. This again reminds me of what Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that many will say to him on the last day, Lord, Lord, many will claim to have walked in his light. But it is the most sobering reality in all the universe that many who make that claim with their lips 
actually do not possess what they say they do. They do not walk in the light as they say they do. Now think about all that it takes for a person to say that they're in the light. What does it take to be able to make that claim, whether it's legitimate or not? To say that you're in the light, you have to be at the place where you're willing to say that you have an understanding of the fact that Jesus is the light. You need to be able to equate Jesus with the light to be able to make the claim that John is saying here. And to think that you can say that you're in the light, you, you have to be able to say that you're somehow connected to all the other people that claim to be in the light. And to think that you're able to say that you're in the light, you at least have to have some measure of outward appearance of being in the light. To be able to say it, you have to have some reason that you yourself think that you can say it. You know that Jesus is the light. You are associated with other people that claim to walk in the light. And you have some other kind of outward appearance that you walk in the light. Imagine what it would have been like for the apostles when they found out that Judas had betrayed Jesus. Judas had seemed to do what all the rest of them did in leaving everything to follow Jesus, just like the other 11 did. From what we can tell, Judas seemed to be the apostle who was responsible for the finances of their ministry operation. So he was reliable. He was maybe attentive to detail. He was a man that they held as a man of integrity. Judas would have been paired with another apostle and he would have been sent throughout Galilee at one point in Jesus' ministry with the power to do what? The power to heal from diseases. The power to cast out demons. Judas would have pre presented, he would have preached the gospel of the kingdom and people would have been converted by his preaching. And his time among the apostles apparently raised little concern even when Jesus himself, remember at the Last Supper, he gave Judas the bread, saying, the one I give the bread to will betray me. And we didn't see much alarm from the apostles when Jesus did that. They still really didn't seem to believe Jesus. And the lesson that we learn from the life of Judas is so, so sobering. Because if someone who was so close to the light of the world could remain in darkness the whole time, then it's certainly possible that anyone today could actually be in darkness, even though they say that they're in the light. And then to top it all off, the most fearful aspect of this kind of false conversion is the fact that those who are false don't even necessarily realize that they're false. Consider Jesus' famous parable known as the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower, we find it in Mark 4, we find it in Matthew 13, and we find it in Luke chapter 8. And the story is probably known by all of us. There was a farmer who planted seeds in his field. And at the beginning of the story, we hear about the seeds that fell on the hard ground, and of course they didn't grow at all. And then at the end of the story, we read about the seeds that were planted in the good soil, and of course, those seeds took root and they grew and they gave fruit to a great degree. These two parts of the story are the most clear and the most easy to understand the meaning of them. 
The hard soil represents a sinner who responds with rejection and hostility and hardness to the gospel. And there's, it doesn't even take root in their mind really at all. They just reject it flat out. And the good soil, obviously, are those who truly receive the gospel and it is implanted in their heart and it takes root. And for the rest of their life, they bear fruitfulness for the glory of God. But then in the middle of the story, we hear of two other types of soil. Along with the hard and along with the good, we read about the stony and about the thorny soil. The seeds that fell into soil that had rocks in it, the rocky, the stony soil, they initially grew up as shoots, but then they were burned by the sun because the roots couldn't really take hold in the stony ground. And then there was the seed that fell in the soil that was covered by thorns and weeds and it took root. But as it, as it grew, it was choked out by the other plant material and so it, it died away as well. And the lesson is clear that not only the hard soil, but also the stony and also the thorny soil did not produce lasting fruit. And so these plants all fell away and they were not genuine. Only one of the four soils was an authentic, true convert, a true Christian. The other three were false. One rejected flat out, and the other two looked for a time like they were genuine, but in the end, they fell away. And there is something of great significance in the lessons of the shoots that came from the stony and the thorny soil. A really important lesson from those two groups. And we can combine some of the imagery that we're considering here in 1 John with what Jesus taught in that parable. We could clearly say that those who are the hard soil are those who walk in darkness. I think we can pretty easily make that connection. And we could clearly say that those who are the good soil are those who walk in the light. That's pretty easy to do. But what about those who are the thorny and the stony soil? These four soils really represent everybody. So what about those? Are they walking in the darkness or are they walking in the light? There really is no other option. And I think that what we would find to be true is that those who are the stony and the thorny soils actually represent those who go for a time in life actually thinking that they are the good soil. But they find out at some point that they actually aren't good soil. In other words, comparing to what John is saying in 1 John 2, they are those who say that they're in the light. But their claim is found out in time to be unfounded and not legitimate because they actually, as John says, are walking in the darkness. For stony hearts, these are those who find that it is just too high a cost to follow Jesus on his terms in a world that is hostile to him. Because as Jesus said, if the world is hostile to me, they will be hostile to you. And so those in the stony soil say that is too high a price to pay when they see what the terms really are. And so they say, no, thank you. And then for the thorny hearts, these are those who get so distracted by the pleasures of the world that they find themselves eventually more in love with the things of the world than they could ever be in love with Christ. And so their, 
their attachment to him just fades away and they prove to be only attached to the world. And in both instances, we find that there are those who give an initial appearance of being in the light. They say they're in it. They look like they're in it. They're a shoot that begins to sprout. They hang around those who are in the light. But in the end, we find that these ones are more in love with darkness than they are with the light of Christ. And so their shoot dies and they bear no spiritual fruit at all. And how sobering that is for a person to begin growing like they're in the light and to receive then the same care and the same nourishment and the same spiritual food and attention that all the other plants get as members of God's garden of grace. We are fed with his word and his spirit ministers to us. And those who say they're in the light get to benefit from a lot of those things. So to have that and then to still fall away, it is a heartbreaking thing to which there is no comparison at all. And we actually are reading about it in our scripture reading through the gospel of Luke, even today. How Jesus said it is better for the people of of Nineveh, they, they will come and they will give a attestation to the fact that the light that they had was sufficient to allow them to turn. But the people in Jesus's day had so much light in his presence, and yet the Pharisees and the lawyers would not turn. And Jesus said to them, woe to you. What a sobering thing to have that light and to reject it. For a person to, to do this, there's really no comparison and that takes us back to where we are in 1 John. We have to understand that just because a person says that they walk in the light, it doesn't mean that they actually do. The example of Judas makes that clear. The lesson of the stony and the thorny soils makes it clear too. No mere verbal affirmation can, validates one, can validate one's claim to be in the light. Just by saying it doesn't validate it. The parable of the soils tells us that if a verbal claim is all you have, then one day something strong will come and will rip it away from you. And you won't claim any longer. What we need instead is a powerful and an irreversible change in our hearts that itself give, gives rise to a verbal claim that cannot be shaken because it is accompanied by other validating realities. And so this is why we have verses in Scripture such as Galatians 5, 22 and 24 through 24 that says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And also 2 Peter 1, verses 5 to 8. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's Hebrews 12, verses 12 to 15. 
Or the writer says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And there are many other texts that tell us that verbal claims must be accompanied by other fruits of conversion. We cannot merely have a verbal claim and nothing else. And John has in our text added his voice to the list of things that must also be true of a person who claims to be in the light in order for that claim to be valid. But it is interesting that here John only gives us a a single thing. Not a lengthy list of things that must be found true in our lives. We see that he gives one simple thing. Look at verses 9, 10, and 11. It's in all three of these verses. Verses 9, verse 10, and then the beginning of 11, and back in 1 John 2, he says, Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. And I think that it's really clear from these verses what John thinks is possibly the single most distinctively Christian trait of all. If you had to summarize or boil down everything that it is to be a Christian and you had to come up with one thing, the one thing that is most distinctive over everything else, this is what John thinks it is. It's love for each other. That's the most distinctively Christian thing. Now, let me be quick in pointing out that when John says brothers in these verses about loving your brother or hating your brother, he's first of all not referring to your physical brothers and sisters specifically. Though I've heard this used as a parenting device, and although that might be helpful, it's not exactly what John has in mind here. Neither is he referring to the idea of the brotherhood of all mankind in the sense that we all are descendants from Adam. In that case, we're all human brothers and sisters. So he's not talking about either of those. But rather, I believe John is referring to the brothers and sisters within the church. They are the family of Christ bonded together by adoption. So we are all adopted siblings in Christ's family and we are to love our brothers and sisters in the family of Christ. And so John is saying that we verify our claim to be in the light when we love the family of God. And this leads me to the second main idea about walking in the light from these verses. It's this. If you love Christians, you prove that you walk in the light. So the first point was that if you merely claim, nothing's proved. But then point number two, if you love Christians, then you do indeed prove that you walk in the light. And I'm really thankful for John's simplicity on this point. There are other places in Scripture where a similar point about proving that you have true faith is being made. And in many places, it's a long discussion 
There are lengthy portions of Jesus' teaching in which he talks about the true nature of faithfulness, even his parables. We just referenced one in Mark 4. Paul spends a couple of chapters in Romans talking about what it means to be alive to righteousness and not a slave to sin. A lot of logic, a lot of deep thoughts that he has. James devotes a good chunk of his letter to the theme of showing your faith by your works. And really, the whole book of Hebrews has to do with persevering in faith. And there's a way in which we could say even the entirety of John's letter here that we're studying is on this theme. But here in his wisdom and from his pastoral heart, John simply tells us that the singular best way to prove that you are in the light is simply to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you do that, that one thing, then you prove that you walk in the light. And he makes this instruction in two different kinds of ways. He makes it as a negative statement in these verses, and he makes it as a positive statement. So look with me in in your copy of the Bible. He says in verse 9, negatively, that even if you claim to walk in the light and yet you hate your brother, that's the opposite of love, that's the negative, And he says also negatively in verse 11 that whoever hates his brother walks in darkness. So those are the negative ways of saying it. If you hate, then you're not in the light. That's the opposite of loving. And then he says it positively in verse 10. He says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And this is pretty clear, I think. There really are no middle positions. There is nothing called lating your brother, in which you kind of love and kind of hate. There is not something known as not quite hate, yet not quite love. Kind of a middle ground where I'm not loving and I'm not hating, I'm just kind of neutral. There isn't that option either. Nor does John leave any room for vacillating in between the two states. You cannot be one who is inclined to love on Tuesday and then be inclined to hate on Wednesday and then inclined to love again on Thursday and to vacillate between those two positions. You are either one who is permanently inclined to love your fellow Christians or you are one who is permanently inclined to not love Christians. The point is plainly in front of us, and we can understand it in ourselves by testing how it is that we love Christians in two sorts of ways. I believe I have them listed out in the outline in the bulletin for you. First, we can test our love by applying the test of general associations, what I call the test of general associations. Do you find that you generally love Christians in general across the world. If you find that you think Christians are the kind of people that you don't really fit in with. If you would prefer to to distance yourself from the really serious Christians because they are a little bit different than you. If you find the habits and the thoughts and the desires of the Christians to be a little distasteful and a little off-putting. If those things are true of you, then it's possible that you are walking in the darkness and not in the light because you don't love your Christian brothers and sisters and neither do you love what they love. 
But instead, if you find that you long to be around Christians more than any other person, if you prefer conversations with your Christian associates over conversations with those in the world, if you desire to imitate the behaviors and thoughts and words and affections of the Christians in your life rather than the non-Christians in your life, if those kinds of things are true of you, then it's because you walk in the light as they do. We need to be sure that it is generally true of us that we love all Christians and that we love all that Christians think and all that Christians do and all that Christians say and all that Christians love. Do you have the same appetite and desires as all the Christians do? Or do you find that the things that the Christians really like and say and do, you'd rather distance yourself from them? But there's another test of Christian love. And it has to do with whether or not you will be forgiving and patient with your specific Christian associates. In other words, not only do we need to assess our general associations to make sure that we love to be with and to be like Christians, but we also need to apply the test of specific relationships in order to make sure that we indeed love our brothers and sisters. And this is what I mean by the test of specific relationships. In God's good providence, you have certain Christians in your life. You could have been born anywhere at any time. You could have become a Christian at any time by God's sovereignty. But by his providence, you are who you are, where you are, when you are. And here we are as the Christians that God has brought together in this specific local congregation. We aren't merely to love Christians across the world more than we love unbelievers across the world. We aren't just to have a special bond with the Christians in your extended family more than the people in your family who aren't Christians. Nor is it that we're to only find delight in the fact that there are maybe some Christians that you work with that you tend to like better than the, than the other people you work with who aren't Christians. What we have to understand is that the Christians, the Christian brothers and sisters at your local church are specifically and uniquely in view in what John says here. He's not just talking about Christians in general. I believe he's clearly referencing the specific Christians in your local congregation. We are to specially love and care for our brothers and sisters here in our, in our own church. We're to specially bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters in our local congregation. We're to be patient and forgiving towards those whom we see week in and week out in our assembly. Now, there are times in life when this duty to love each other in our local congregation is not really too hard. We're probably in a spot like that right now. It's generally not too hard to get along and to love one another. There are times when a church body is in agreement on just about everything, when there are not large issues of sin and division. But then there are times when a church body has stress, when a church body has difficulty, when there's a member or two who is sinning, maybe 
egregiously sinning or when there's not agreement on teachings or on major philosophy decisions for the, for the church. And it's in these times when John's test is best observed. In God's sovereign providence, when a local congregation goes through a time of disunity or division or strife or contention, that is the time when you find out who's walking in the light and who isn't. When tensions are high, when offenses are visible, when disagreement abounds, when these sorts of things are at their peak, that's when the love of those who are in the light is most clearly visible. Because they give a loving, soft answer to turn away wrath. Because they let love cover a multitude of offenses. Because they prefer one another in honor. Because their love for each other does not seek their own good, but rather seeks the good of others. Because they esteem each other as more important than themselves. Because they view their offenses against Jesus as greater than their brother or sister's offenses against them. Because they trust God and they submit to his control instead of seeking to impose their own will, because they know that a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. When the stakes are the highest, when conflict is at its peak, that's when true brotherly love is most clearly known. And to this point about how we prove that we walk in the light by loving other Christians, I think that we would all be helped by reading from Paul's letter to a very divided church. You may not realize it, but the letter to the Romans was actually written to a congregation that was fiercely divided between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul wrote the letter to combat their division. And in chapter 12 of Romans, beginning in verse 3, Specifically, we read from Paul some of the most practically helpful words of pastoral exhortation in the Bible on the subject of loving your brothers and sisters. So let's read through this set of heartfelt instructions together so that we might be the kind of loving people that we ought to be if indeed we walk in the light. So let's read Romans 12 verses 3 all the way to verse 21. And as we do this, we have to see if indeed we specifically evidence what Paul is saying, because these are the marks of a congregation that loves. Romans 12, verses 3 to 21. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor 
what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so much as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's so many thought-provoking things in here for us to consider about how we can love one another. May we not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. May we use our gifts for the purpose of building each other up, of making each other better. May we love genuinely with affection. May we despise evil. May we hold fast to what's good. I love the one where he says, let's outdo each other in showing honor, almost like it's a competition to see who can honor the other better. Let us contribute to each other's needs. Let us be hospitable. May we weep when one of us weeps. May we rejoice when one of us rejoices. And may we live in harmony with each other. And when we view each other even as enemies because of offenses, may we still treat each other with love. And I hope that we as a congregation will excel in all these things and more since we are a group of those who walk in the light. And in so doing... If we love one another in that way, we prove that we walk in the light. And I could go so far as to say, only when we love like that do we prove that we walk in the light. And before we move on to John's next point, I need to cover two important benefits to this kind of love that he lists back in verse 10. So go back there with me. We need to be careful not to skip over this because he says in verse 10 of 1 John chapter 2, that whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. There are two benefits there to proving this kind of, of love, by, by, or that you walk in the light by this kind of love. One benefit, John says, that those who love their fellow Christians, they abide in the light. Now, this is not to say that abiding in the light or abiding in Jesus, and we talked about what it means to abide in him several weeks ago, this is not to say that abiding in Christ is somehow dependent on loving one another. You have to love one another first, and then you get to be connected to Jesus. It doesn't work that way. It's rather saying the exact opposite. If you show this kind of love, 
then you know with confidence that what must be true of you, because we don't show this kind of love naturally. We don't do this on our own. If we show the kind of love that we just read about in Romans 12 to each other, then it proves that we have been connected to the vine. And his life of love is flowing through us to our brothers and sisters around us because we don't naturally do it. So we know with confidence that we abide in the light when we love one another because we do the thing that only the light, that only Christ can empower us to do. So if you love one another as you ought, then you have confidence that you abide in Christ. That's the first benefit in verse 10. It's a benefit of assurance, of confidence. And the second benefit is in the next phrase where John says that in him, in the one who loves his brother, there is no cause for stumbling. Not only do we have confidence that we abide in Christ if we love one another, but we also have freedom to live without fear of falling. We don't have to fear that we will stumble. And there's a really obvious illustration of this benefit that really is right in front of us. To illustrate it, all I would have to do is turn off all the power to your house and wait until tonight and see what happens. If you do not have light around you, and you have to get up to get something to drink or to do something in the middle of the night, you're going to bang your toe on the door. You're going to trip on something. You're going to knock something over. You're going to stumble because you don't know where you're going. Now, maybe some of you do that even when the lights are on, but it's just exaggerated when there are no lights. We tend to take light for granted nowadays we even have it on our cell phones whenever you want it, a little flashlight to illumine things. But imagine living in ancient days when the only source of illumination was firelight or candlelight. Kind of a rare commodity. You couldn't just whip it out of your pocket when you wanted it. And then imagine being in a very dark place at night without having a light source nearby. This experience would have been very common for John's readers, and so they knew well what it was to have to stumble around in the darkness. And that's the imagery that John is bringing to bear. And what we learn from considering the nature of darkness without a light source is the fact that light provides us with a sense of freedom as we walk about. When we leave the place today, because it's sunny, you don't have to even think about stumbling because you can see everything all around you. Without light, you grope around for something to hold on to, to guide you. Without light, you never know where your step might lead you or if it might even be your last step. Without light, you are a prisoner to your surroundings with only your wits to help you out. But if you have light, then you can see where you are going without even having to think about it. If you have light all around you, then you have freedom to make decisions about your environment and you don't even have to worry about accidentally falling into peril because you're in the light and you can see clearly everything around you. And that is the spiritual benefit to come, that comes to those who love other Christians. If you truly love other Christians, then you can know that you are running properly in your spiritual life. You're working correctly. 
Having a true love for Christians not only evidences that you're truly saved, but it also evidences that your Christian life is indeed headed in the right direction. You don't have to worry about falling. What a freedom it is to know that you are living your life in a way that pleases your master. And you know that you have no cause for stumbling if you love your brother's and sisters in Christ. John makes that clear. You have no cause for stumbling because indeed you are walking in the light. But it is a different matter altogether if you do not love Christians. Coming back to John's points in these verses, we need to consider the final aspect of what it means, what he's teaching us about walking in the light in these verses. He first indicated that nothing is proved by a mere verbal claim to walk in the light. And then we just saw that the thing which validates your claim to walking in the light is true love for other Christians. And then the third and final point that the apostle makes about walking in the light is this. Thirdly, if you do not walk in the light, he says that you are blind. If you do not walk in the light, you are blind. This is what we learned from verse 11. Where he says, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is really similar to what Jesus said in John 11 and verse 10, where he says, if anyone walks in the light or if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And I hope we're brought to a a kind of astonishment at the same kind of simplicity in this verse as the last one, that spiritual illumination and blindness both rest solely on whether or not we love one another. As we learned in the previous point, you prove that you're in the light if you love. So it is with this point. You are blind if you do not love. You prove that you're blind if you do not love. And as we wrap up and close, I want you to just think about the predicament that a person is in who does not love Christians. Observe what John says, because he says that that person is both blind and in the darkness. It would be bad enough to be in the darkness and not be blind, or it would be bad enough to be in the light and blind. But he says that we are both blind and in the darkness. What a sobering condition to be in. If you are blind and in the dark, then you simply have no way of even knowing that you're in the dark. Because you have no way to perceive darkness or light. What a miserable condition that is. To not only be in darkness, but to also not be able to perceive that you dwell in darkness because you lack the ability to see it all. Secondly, if you are blind and in darkness then you not only need to know where the light is, but you have to have your eyesight restored before you can even find it or perceive it. The one who directs you to the light is called the evangelist. That's the person who proclaims God's word to you so that you might know where the light is. And that's a gracious gift enough if you're in the darkness for someone to yell to you, the light's over there. But the one who opens your eyes is the Holy Spirit. It's God. 
And there might be some of you who have been told over and over and over and over again where the light is. But until the Holy Spirit sovereignly gives you eyes to see, you won't ever find it. And according to what we read in Luke today, what does Jesus say you must do? Ask, ask, ask impudently because he says to the one who seeks finds the one who knocks it will be opened and whoever asks the Holy Spirit will be given. And then thirdly, related to that second thing is this, that if you have been brought out of the darkness, if you have been given your eyesight, all of this by the glorious grace and mercy of God, then you ought to have very little trouble in loving those who also have been taken to the light and have their eyes, their eyesight restored. In other words, we could think of the last of John's points about walking in the light so as to help us to see what great lengths God has gone to to rescue us from darkness. He had to not only take us out of the domain of darkness and open our eyes and point us into the way of truth, but he had to do that for all of us to bring us together. There is nothing more unifying than that to know that None of us is greater than the other because all of us were blind. And which of us by our own power could restore our eyesight when we were blind? None of us has that power. So why would we fail to love one another as we ought? Why would we look down on one another when we realize that we are no better than the person beside us? Each of us needed God's ministry, providential and sovereign ministry in our own hearts for us to be able to see. And if he would do this for you, and if he would do this to the person sitting next to you, then we are all obligated by his grace to love one another. So according to what Paul says, let us prove that we walk in the light by having true love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, we ask that you would indeed help us to this end because we are often tempted by our flesh and by the whispers of our enemy and by the winds of worldliness to not love Christians and to not love each other. May we, Father, not give in to that temptation, but may we truly be those who walk in the light and prove it by loving one another. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.